0: Welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth with the goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the world. There's no doubt for me that artist Jen Hasson really cares about the world we live in and wants to make a positive difference. So her artwork is often focused on raising the awareness of issues that are important to her, like veteran suicide, sexual abuse in the military, and the stigma of mental health. She loves to create community engagement as a way to bring people together. That might look like a bunch of veterans and civilians rolling handmade paper together, allowing them to talk and share stories and learn how to relate to each other. Really a form of art therapy. As an artist who is also a veteran herself, she's able to help be a connection between the military and civilian world. We talk about her humble, small-town beginnings, her time in the military, deciding not to be a dentist, discovering art, and about two really important artworks she has created, one of which made it to be displayed at the Pentagon after many rejections and much persistence. It's an interesting coincidence that the same week I'm releasing this interview, the Jocko Podcast just released a three-part series ending with an episode with Marine Jake Schick, who is involved with 22Kill. Their mission is to raise awareness of the veteran suicide epidemic, an issue that Jen is very passionate about. If you want to go deeper and hear the story of one veteran's experience, I highly recommend Jocko Podcast episode 123. It's heavy and long, but I think very important, and it makes me thankful for what I have, And after hearing both of these conversations, I feel a desire to get involved with veterans in some way and try to help. So here is Jen. Thanks, Jen, for being on my podcast.
1: Thank you, Scott, for having me.
0: So for someone that's never met you or heard of you, how would you describe yourself? And maybe that's connected to your logo that you have too
1: yeah my roots where i'm from so i'm born and raised here in texas Mm -hmm. i grew up in eagle lake texas which is a hunting and farming community um i'm really glad as an artist that i have that small town perspective that Mm -hmm. that's where i'm from because like especially right now in the world we live in it's I think important to have that different perspective of like, at least I understand where some other people may be coming from with their opinions. Yeah. Even if I don't agree with them, at least I have like this, it's not shocking to me.
0: And just having grown up poor with, a lot of struggle.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I Makes grew you up.
0: probably appreciate where you are now.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I grew up very poor. And um, I think that's something that for a long time, maybe I was a little bit embarrassed about, but mm-hmm. I've learned to embrace it and accept it. Uh, my mom and dad, neither one of them grew up that way. My mother grew up very wealthy in Houston. And, you know, I think for her, whenever she hears her children say, know, that they grew up poor without that. It very much shocks her that mm-hmm. we would even think that.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but, you know, when we'd go visit our grandfather or grandmother, they had money.
2: <laughs> and yeah, they, yeah.
1: So we got to live like I grew up poor, but with class, if that makes any sense. Like we mm-hmm. didn't have like we grew up in a trailer. And then when we moved into a house, it wasn't a very nice house. I mean, I can remember taking a bath in an igloo cooler and having to heat up my water on the stove and when we didn't have electricity, I had to heat up my water on a fire. So, I yeah. mean, okay. To me, that's kind of, you know, stringing along an extension cord to like go and steal electricity from your neighbor. Yeah. equals definition of poor in that, my mind.
0: Yeah. That's <laughs> one version of it for yeah. sure. So,
2: um,
1: yeah, I mean, I don't I, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it at all though i mean it's really kind of made me have some tough skin and
0: yeah how is um, that related to the weevil
1: oh yeah the logo so uh weevils are terrible and especially where i'm from farming country like the last thing you want is you know weevils to take over but i roll paper so it's uh and weevils roll leaves they like destroy crops they're terrible pests you know you can look at The damage they've done just by looking on the ground and seeing the evidence of it you know when i started rolling paper and i was experimenting uh with how i wanted to create this spiral within paper you know Mm -hmm. like by using paper the first thing i thought of was a weevil so years later i had a great intern and um, she's graphic design and i had told her this idea of like wanting to have this beetle kind of represent me being like Mm -hmm. a pest almost in the world that we live in in a in a good way though
0: (laughs) like persistence that's what it is i like never stop and
1: and it's also you know like if you look at my work i roll and roll and roll and if it's not rolling it's still like a multiple a lot Mm -hmm. of you know i'm like folding paper over and over and over again or Um, drawing lines that like never end, you know. So yeah, I think it's just this, it kind of goes with my personality a little bit.
0: How would you then describe your work and your career then to someone that doesn't know about you?
1: I would say I'm a human first that cares about the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. deeply i really care about what we can do as a society to to make the world around us a better place and i think a lot of that right now is like understanding each other and Mm -hmm. being willing to listen to one another i very much care about the future and the future of our world i think to my core we can help make better and so I feel like I've been this very lucky person almost to have this responsibility to make visual art that helps push that along. So that's me in a nutshell, I think as a a human first and then an artist and, um, you know, but I very much care about humanity and just raising awareness about various topics, which go hand in hand with like who I am and my past and things I've gone through. Um, so it's like autobiographical and some sense, but at the same time, my work is definitely about way more than just me.
0: Can you share some of the things that maybe you're referencing that you've been through that kind of formed who you are?
1: Sure. So growing up rough, um, I think another thing to bring up is like violence and um, like neither, like I said earlier, neither one of my parents kind of uh, raised us the way they were raised. So alcoholism came into play, um, very careless with money, but also very careless with like, watching their children sometimes. Like, I feel like they had so many of us, there were six of us, um, that sometimes they are just like, oh, yeah, the kids are watching each other. You know, it might have, like, been unintentional, but we found ourselves in situations where, like, sexual violence came into play Mm. and, um, you know, being molested as a kid, you know, and, and having to, like, navigate through life with that is something that's, like, built me. You know, and it wasn't until recently that I really became okay with that. Um, so I've made work about sexual violence and and rape, and then um, also the military comes into play too for me because I um, joined right out of high school. You know, it wasn't right out of high school. I spent a couple months screwing up, and then was like, okay, I need to yeah. do what all my brothers did, which was join the navy. And uh, I joined the Air Force, and um, I don't think whenever I joined that I knew that it was going to be part of my makeup, like, after. I knew that I was joining the military, and I knew we were in a time of war, and, you know, the importance of that. Mm -hmm. I joined in 2005, and so... You know, I I made that decision not really understanding that, like, forever I would be part of this club as a veteran. And yeah. um, so a lot of my work, because I deeply care about that veteran and military community, has to do with issues within the military, like suicide and, um, you know, our deaths abroad. You know, yeah. killed in action, died of wounds. Um, yeah. You know, these are men and women that served our country for similar reasons as I did, that they— mm-hmm. Uh, were willing, to enable, but then, you know, a lot of them joined open general, like I did too, which means you join not with a job, like mm-hmm. they assigned you something. So they assigned me dental technician and, um, so you just
0: left it up to fate. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I just left like, and so I got dental tech and which is a job where you don't have a weapon and it's safe. And you work in a dental clinic with mm-hmm. dentists, and it's very happy. It's like, Probably one of the safest jobs to have in the military. Yeah. You know, when I joined, I was, um, I had marksmanship. I was one of the only females that did in my flight and mm-hmm. uh, basic training. And it's kind of funny they gave me a job where I couldn't have a weapon.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Well, speaking of jobs, I had read something about. How you had started working at eleven? Just to back up a little uh, yeah. bit before we leave your uh, <laughs> past too my
1: much. My work ethic. um Yeah. It's, so I I started working at eleven years old for a family that owned uh, a restaurant, and uh, my sister had just been born, my baby sister Melissa, who works for me all the time. She's at a lot of art events with me too, and. So Melissa was a baby, and there was this baby born just a, you know a couple blocks down. And I remember at the time, like making business cards on notebook paper and like <laughs> passing them out. Like I want to babysit for you. And the reason why I was like so adamant about working was because um, I knew in sixth grade I was going to try out for cheerleading, mm-hmm. and we were, we didn't have money for that. And so my parents flat out told me. You know, if you want to cheer, then you got to go make your money. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, was going to start saving for that. And I ended up babysitting for this family that owns a, uh, restaurant in my hometown. I would babysit his kids uh, and it, he had a baby just a few months older than my sister at the table, you know, just like they would sit in high chairs and then I would bust tables and he usually was cooking and there was somebody waiting tables and one day the waitress didn't show up. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I got this. Like I've watched it enough. I know what I'm doing. And so, March before I turned 12, uh, and I, my birthday's in June, I started waiting tables and I was on the schedule, you know, good old small Texas town, American family, you know, <laughs> no, but uh, making money and working was important. And my family, um, I contributed financially early on. So did my brothers. I think it on one hand was good for us to do that. I mean, it really enabled our parents yeah. to have to like, Take responsibility for some of the things that, in my mind, they should have been responsible for. You know, and and so I don't, I don't hold it against them, but at the same time, I would never take money from my children. Yeah, like, that's one of those things where, like, hindsight, <laughs> I would never do that.
0: But you also, it also forced you in a way to be very involved. things outside of the house because you just didn't want to be there right
1: yeah oh yeah you know so i was i was very 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 busy whenever i was a a a kid growing up i was like i said a cheerleader i was in band i was you know part of student council i had something every day like after school Mm -hmm. you know volleyball cross country you name it yeah (laughs) i was part of it and um yeah it definitely my reason was because i wanted to be so busy that i didn't have time to be at home or around family um that i didn't want to be around you yeah. know and so my sister though i will say is kind of and i have a brother too that i'm pretty close with and i've always been close with them you know other than that like i didn't really want to be around them i didn't want to share meals with them that wasn't important to me it was important to just stay busy, to stay away from that, you know? And I think that because of that though, like that's, that's why earlier I said, like, I don't, I wouldn't change it because of being so busy and part of the community. I met all these people that ended up caring about me that were from the village, you know, like you hear that all the time. It takes a village to raise people and, uh, or kids. And, um, you know, there were people in my hometown that, uh, were the first, Um, people to really believe in me and Mm. and make me feel like I could be more than a waitress and uh, you like, you know, and and just get away. And one of those people, his name's Mr. Truly, um, Ralph Truly, and uh, he's the one that convinced me to join the Air Force. And because I told him I was going to join and he was in the he was World War Two Air Force, which at the time was part of the army. But he told me that he really felt like the Air Force would be good for me. And he knew me, you know, and and, um, he was like, this way, you could see the world and you can uh, go and grow up a little bit away from all of this and and go turn into who you're supposed to be. And I was already calling him grandpa at that point. Yeah, just because he like, you know, he was one of those people that came into the same restaurant every night for dinner. If we didn't see him, we would call him and be like, are you okay? Everything. Yeah.
0: Well, thank goodness so, you had someone step up to Yeah, be a, and he was mentor. one of those.
1: Yeah, and then my bosses that I've had over the years, like growing up, you know, they were all... I ended up working at another restaurant in Eagle Lake. There was Renee, you know, and then also these other bosses that ended up having, having yeah. that, like, definitely brought this sense of stability to my life um that was very very unstable you know but that hard work like has never left me though and yeah. in fact like when i did join the military i was used to opening up this like hunting restaurant at 3:30 in the morning for hunters to be able to go have chicken fried steak and eggs before they went and shot geese and duck and You know, and then they'd have second breakfast and I was always working, you know, Mm. all the time. And so when I joined the military and had to wake up for PT, like at 530 in the morning or five or 445 or whatever date, you know, time they gave us, uh, that was no big thing. You know, I was like, okay, I got this. It's, I mean, I was already used to just like working myself like crazy. So, um, Didn't you
0: also have a formative moment with your biological grandfather kind of around that time that you transitioned out of Eagle Lake?
1: Look at you doing your research, (laughs) (laughs) knowing about me. Um, So, yeah, uh, definitely. Probably one of the most important, you know, if there's like, you know, the most important five people you meet in life uh, or like five instances or things Um, My grandfather died right before I joined the military and I was fresh out of high school. I did something that very much disappointed him Mm -hmm. um, to his core and he was dying and angry Mm -hmm. about that. And um, he let me know that he hated me and that I was a disappointment Mm. and that I just completely had no integrity and like that he just, felt like I was never going to be anything in life
2: Yeah,
1: and as mean as that was it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in life mm. and I still now like he was an art lover he was an avid art lover mm. uh, after he retired he went to Rice University and took art classes and oh wow. he was like in the art scene you know and like when he died like Glass Tire had a thread about it like a blog about my grandfather oh, wow. dying okay. so like in the art scene I think he just would be so freaking proud of me if he were here yeah. and Uh, You know, and I, I wear a piece of jewelry that's made out of the gold that he, he gave me from a ring when I turned 16 and it's just this like visual and constant reminder to have integrity and Mm. to have honesty in my life. So that way I don't disappoint people because you know what, like if you're disappointed by the truth, well, at least it's the truth and it's not a lie. (laughs) So I love this like very, and that probably informs my artwork too, honestly, um, I want truth. I do a lot of research. And I also, you know, I I want the integrity to be embedded into the work. And so okay. that, I think before I joined the military, um, that integrity was kind of embedded into me through this experience of extremely disappointing somebody. And then he died and never, we never resolved that. Mm. So it's just kind of been the, one of these things in life that I'm like, you know, I never want that to happen again. And I've lived this life like through that experience
0: since mm-hmm. yeah. but i
1: think it's a good lesson
0: oh yeah it's a very good lesson so you feel like he might even be watching over you and when you think maybe you might not be honest or oh something. yeah and
1: sometimes i'm so honest that it's to a fault oh well uh, i mean really that's <laughs> <laughs> <Ask> my husband <laughs> yeah uh sometimes i'm very honest and um and even with my friends you know i i'm a. I'm a no bullshit kind of person and yeah. right. probably, you know, part of that lesson from him, but it's, uh, it's, it was a good one and I'm glad I went through it.
0: Yeah. What kind of lessons do you think you learned in the military or how did that Form you as a person because I know that you know, a lot of times the purpose of boot camp and all that they try to break you down and build you back up but I mean it seems like you were probably pretty tough going in already
1: yeah um, I definitely went in with a chip on my shoulder um and that showed early on in basic mm. and the other thing is I'll say a marching band and cheerleading like makes you have really good form and uh, <laughs> and I was like so like marching I was like a star day one you know like yeah. I already knew how to march and I like was perfect um, so immediately I got put into a leadership position mm-hmm. which all of my brothers told me, like the last thing you want to do in basic training and boot camp is to like shine. You mm. you want to be invisible. Like just blend in and then day one it's like, you know, training us and way. Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Oh well, okay. Screwed that one up. Um, which my sister's about to leave for the army and that's what I told her it was mm. just like be invisible, like don't talk. Just, <laughs> just Only, you know, so
0: that made it harder for only
1: speak when you're spoken to. Um, Yeah, it does. It makes it a lot harder because you I mean, first off, you
0: get more responsibilities. It seems like that would work for you.
1: I know. But, you've
0: God, had know. tons of responsibility since you were very young. Yes. I mean, it seems like true. that would just be natural for it's you. It's
1: true. And it, and it, <laughs> it is natural for me. And it's in fact I'm one of those people that stays so busy all the time that like I stay busy with all these things that are unnecessary but that are really good, you know, like being yeah. part of a booster club or being part of whatever. Like it's and it's not like I have super- to do it.
0: You were super involved in the military too. You like did a lot. You went of above and beyond and did a lot of things. Yeah,
1: I got awarded like Airman of the Year and I was promoted early. Um, so I'll start off by saying this: like my military experience overall was a great experience, and I had people that that were there to lift me up and uh, people there that definitely promoted me to um, be uh, successful and to be like the best airman that I possibly could be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, some really set me up for, for being, um, a shiny airman and winning these (laughs) things, you know, like I kind of felt groomed sometimes and I didn't Mm. like, I think the moment that I realized that I was being groomed, I all of a sudden was like, Oh no, like they're giving me all these opportunities. But the truth was everybody had those opportunities Mm -hmm. and I was the one taking them. And it's probably because of this mentality of like, go, 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 go and be part of all these things. Yeah. And then there's a huge but. <laughs> yeah. But the military's not perfect at all, mm-hmm. and um, for me, unfortunately, one of the things that I went through was military sexual trauma (MST) mm-hmm. um, and rape, and um, that was early on in my mm. military time. And uh, sometimes, whenever I'm really trying to make it make sense, I really think about you know the man that did that to me. You know, I think. That he probably could see that I was already damaged, you know, whenever Mm. I came in. Like, I probably showed him something. Not not to give myself the fault. I mean, he was the predator. But part of being a predator is knowing which person to prey. Yeah. And I think he picked me out of the bundle because it was obvious to him that, like, I was somebody that could take that kind of abuse and that Mm. he could probably get away with it. But unfortunately for him, he did not get away with it. He's still at Leavenworth. He got put away. But I, again, wouldn't change that. I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with it that it Mm. happened. And if anything, sometimes I feel almost not guilty that he got put away. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, he's probably become the victim, you know. And now he's had to go through that. And I don't want anybody to ever get raped. Yeah, that's a terrible thing to go through. And And you
0: weren't the only one. Definitely
1: wasn't the only one for him. Yeah, there's a reason why he went to prison. (laughs) Right. Um, there were several of us that uh, were at his court martial. And so, um, but the other thing is, you know, I showed up to my first base in England. I was stationed in England. Like I said, I was a dental assistant. I sat down with my commander on day one. That's part of, like, you show up to your squadron, you sit down with your supervisor, and then you go and you have a talk with your commander. Mm -hmm. And I flat out told him, like, hey, this has already been part of my military experience, and can that just not be the thing that shapes me here? Like, I don't want anybody to know. Mm. I never want to talk about this thing. Can We just act like it never happened You know, and if I need somebody to check in with, I'll check in with you, you know, and and let you know that, you know, I'm having a problem or something. Because a lot of times with rape, like when it first happens, it's not as shocking as like years later you start thinking about it and then it can affect you again. Mm. There's like these things. And I knew that and my psychologist and therapist had like gone over that with me. But I didn't want that to be like, oh, there's Airman Hassan, like she's the... Victim, you know, watch yeah. out for that one. And there's also stigma in the military of like women coming forward and saying these things happen, that they may be a liar, or they may. You know it just gives you this, you know, reputation. And I did not want to have the reputation of somebody who had been raped and then now is at this new base. Yeah, you know, I didn't want people to feel like they needed to keep six feet away from me at all times. Isn't so. there
0: also a stigma in the military about just getting help in general? Yes, which relates pretty directly to suicides, and, mm-hmm. and that's an issue that you've addressed too.
1: Definitely, yeah. So in the military now, um, I have. A couple uh, people in my life, my brother and then my good friend Pam, who are both higher ranking now. And it's weird to think like if I would have stayed in the military, I would be higher ranking, you know, like a sergeant, you know, or, you know, my brother is a chief in the Navy. Um, And so like with that rank, you have responsibility, you know, and my friend Pam is a tech sergeant. And, you know, with that rank, you have responsibility of being like the supervisor and you watch over people and both of them have assured me that. Things have changed. And Mm. I think that that's something that, um, you know, the Obama administration and and President Obama himself, like, did a very great job just coming out and saying it. Mm. Um, Because when your leadership does, things trickle down. But whenever I was in, which was not that long ago, I just got out in 2009, which, I mean, nine years, but over the past nine years to see a change go from uh whenever I was in if something was wrong with you, you kept it to yourself. You didn't tell anybody and the last thing you wanted to do was go to mental health and get help. You know, and they tell you that early on in boot camp, they tell you that. They tell you that in tech school. I mean, mm-hmm. it's something that is no secret that like the last thing you want to do is go put your mental problems down on paper for the military. Mm.
0: In your record.
1: (laughs) It's in your record, yeah. And so, you know, whenever I was having problems, uh, the first place they would send you is a chaplain. And I'm not a religious person. And so, like, I didn't necessarily want to go talk to somebody that wanted to pray with me. But I also didn't want to have that on my record. And in talking to my brother, Robert, um, actually, like while this all was going down, he flat out told me he was like, you know, because they tell you this stuff is going to be in your record. My brother was like, Jen, no, it's not like it's your medical record. That's private. Nobody knows about Mm. that. Also, like when you go to mental health, they legally can't call anybody unless you are harming yourself or going to harm somebody else. Like, don't worry about what they're telling you. It's not true. If you need to go to mental health, go to mental health. But in our U.S. military mental health, even still now, like, they're doing better. I do believe that they're doing better. But, I mean, it's not where it could be, like, and, and I'm being critical of that. But, like, I've, you know, traveled to Israel with yeah. my artwork, and but also as a veteran, I went on a veterans leadership group, and we got to spend time with the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, and they have a mental health officer in every single squadron, mm-hmm. like that, to me, blew me away. I was like, wait, what? And they were like, well, financially, like, it makes sense because we do so many one-on-ones with everybody. Like, going and talking to the mental health officers is just, like, part of your weekly routine.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and overall, that structure very much helps them, you know, and they they don't have a problem with suicide in Israel, but we have this huge problem with veteran suicide in the US. And when I first heard that there was a problem and that 22 veterans committed suicide a day. I immediately felt like, okay, that's bull crap. There's no way that 22 veterans commit suicide a day. But the research is there, and they mm. don't know that it's exactly 22. But it could be a little bit less, or it could be more. You know, there are some states they weren't even part of the study. You mm. know, and it also takes that veterans' family to say like, oh, yep, they served in Vietnam, or yes, this person served in World War II. But if they die and veterans not on their death certificate, it's not like it was even part of the statistic. Yeah. And so they came up with this estimate of. 22 veterans a day, the VA did, uh, the veterans administration, you know, that statistic very much inspired me to think like, okay, I have to make something that raises awareness about this, but also like in my work, community engagement and participatory projects are like a huge part of that. Yeah. And so for that piece specifically, you know, I ended up working with over a hundred veterans where we took military uniforms So, hey, I get to talk about making paper here.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we
1: made paper. Uh, But, yeah, we took military uniforms, cut them up into um, tiny little pieces, uh, one inch by one inch or smaller. And then there's this process uh, where you put the fabric into a machine called a Hollander beater. And Mm -hmm. that takes that fabric and it pulps it. Uh, you just mix it with just the fabric and the water, and then you take the pulp and you can run it through screens. Uh, and at the time, I was using a paper maker his name's Malachi Muncy. He's a veteran, you know. But I also made paper with the veterans, and and it was this team building thing, like the camaraderie of like bringing all these people together. And then we had these like huge sacks of paper, and I, you know, my art uh, typically is uh, rolled paper, and mm-hmm. so then like to have this workshop where we had. People come in and out and uh, sit down and and Veterans. roll paper. Veterans, yeah. yeah. And and supporters of the military, too, okay. came in. And, and so we all sat down together, and it became this very, like, camaraderie and team building. Uh, we all were talking and having a really good time, you know, but...
0: Like art therapy. Too.
1: It is a lot like art therapy. But I will say, like, you know, two of the people that worked on that project have committed suicide since.
0: hmm whoa
1: you know and like i mean it's just this rampant mm. thing in the military that so
0: yeah if there's a stigma in the military about it then when you get out you're not probably going to easily change your mind you're not going to change you're your mind not going to look for that, help
1: no and even me and i'll say this too about like my experience in the military like i came out of it like awarded and this airman that like they were surprised when i said oh no i'm getting out you know and and I got out because I wanted to go to school, but I also, you know, was about to become a mother. So mm. my son, Jackson, sometimes I joke that he's my souvenir from my military days, Yeah. Um, you know, but his father is from Texas and that's why I came back to Austin. But, um, you know, I feel like I'm this representative or this connection between the civilian world and the military world. Mm. Like I can communicate things that the civilian world maybe can listen to because it's coming from me, yeah. who doesn't necessarily look like I'm saying that with quotation, you yeah, know, fingers, right. but like I don't, <laughs> I don't look like what people typically think of as a veteran. But I speak the language and I know the issues, and I'm part of that family. I'm part of the club, the veteran club, you know. And so, you know, I I definitely uh, have this connection, this strong tie to the military and the. Uh, veteran world, but I have this beautiful obligation to make the civilian population feel like they can connect with that Mm -hmm. and understand it. And so, you know, like I said, when we were all rolling paper, there were some people that just like really care about the military and they came and they got to get this like insight on like what, you know, stories people were telling. And sometimes they were extremely traumatic stories,
2: Mm.
1: which, um, you know, listening to that trauma... Definitely influences the makeup of the work and the composition. Yeah. And, like, for that piece that we were making, it's called A Battle Lost. A battle lost meaning suicide mm-hmm. that we've lost. Um, But that composition is all these, like, wartime maps that, like, I abstractly put together. Yeah. And they're, um, like, on the piece on the left side. I made it really big. It's a map of Ramadi. And it's because I was around a lot of Marines during the making of A Battle Lost. Mm. And um, they talked about Ramadi, Iraq, and how, like, devastating that was, you know, to, like, Mm -hmm. go with a you know with their buddies you know their marines and to have a lot of them not come back you know and then that survivor's guilt and that's um something Mm. that like even though i never had like a combat position like i can't help but to be you know somebody who feels like a version of survivor's guilt but these guys have this very like first hand experience with survivor's yeah. guilt and like seeing and knowing you know that they made it through and that it was like a lottery it was like a gamble you know they lived but their friends didn't and some of them have like some serious issues with like feeling like they lived through that so i mean they're rambunctious and wild and crazy and they do some of the you know most dangerous things all the time mm. with their own personal life like over drinking and drinking and driving, all these things, you know, yeah. that are like, not good. And I think it's because they feel like they've already cheated death. So why not, you know, Yeah, go and live like that. And so I understand it and I see it and I get it. But I also know that I have this responsibility to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was one of the reasons why we used gold on the piece, uh, which is inspired by Kintsugi, which mm. is Japanese practice, which at one of these paper, I will say this too, like at one of these paper rolling parties, one of these veterans introduced me to Kintsugi. I had never oh, heard of okay. it before, you know, and they were like, you know, this kind of reminds me of this practice. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to bring that to the piece. His name's Paul Brown from Dallas, and he's a Marine. And so I ended up tying all of these. Uh, countries together with this gold foil, you know, and, and that's inspired by Kintsugi, which is this practice where broken pottery is put back together with gold and it's more beautiful for having been broken,
2: Mm -hmm. but now
1: it's also stronger and more valuable because the gold content and all these Mm -hmm. other things and all this like hard work and labor that was put into putting this thing back together. Yeah. Um. you know, and, and the value of that. And so what I'm trying to say with the Battle Lost is that it's our responsibility as a veteran community and in civilians that care, mm-hmm. that also want to contribute are more than welcome to help, but it's our responsibility to help make this issue go away. You know, at the end of the day, when we take up such a small percentage of the population, it's 6% of the population has served or is serving. You know, you take that and then, 20% of the daily suicides are veterans. That, to me, just, like, is a problem. And then 5% are uh, active duty, you know, of these deaths. Mm. 101 people commit suicide a day on average, or 105 a couple of years ago. You know, and if that's if that's the case, we shouldn't be taking such a big chunk of that. And it is an issue that needs to be talked about, and how can we fix this? Because you can't save them all, but you can really try. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing with my work. Yeah. Trying.
0: And I'm just wondering, though, when you left the military, you probably weren't thinking you were going to be an artist, though, right? Oh, no. <laughs> how did that, I had never how did made become work. an artist? So,
1: I mean, yeah, and even growing up, like, I had never taken uh, an art class. I had never, um, my parents weren't for that, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't have money. So they wanted practical things. And God forbid you want to be an artist, you know. So I got out of the military thinking I was going to be a dentist. So I started going to St. Edwards University here in Austin as a pre-dental student.
0: Yeah. I'm just wondering though, like, did you not have this drive then, when you were thinking about being a dentist to, like, change the world or make it a better place, I mean, you just thought, well, I'm just going to be a dentist. Not that dentists don't make the world a they better do. place.
1: but They do make the world. I mean, uh, <laughs> but, I mean,
0: that's just, like, a lot different than being this, like, public figure who's creating these works that address these, like, big issues. Was that in there and you just kind of had suppressed it? Or did it... I know?
1: think it's always been there, you know, okay. and that's probably, like, one of those reasons why, like, I stayed so busy while I was in the military, like, doing things like I was part of, I was like president of the booster club and I was, you know, uh, there's this airman leadership group on base that was all about, um, you know, bettering the lives of airmen on, you know, like living in a foreign country. And so, um, I ended up helping with that a lot and did a lot of things to try to make the lives of the people that I was around more comfortable and better. And I think it was in me even in high school. Like I can remember my mom saying to me that like, and you know, and I didn't have a good relationship with my mother. So for this to stick with me all these yeah, years means something like I did. Yeah. I had a, a terrible relationship with both of my parents, but my mother, I remember her telling me that I had this quality about me at a young age to just like encourage people to jump off a bridge mm. or to, like that. If I wanted to jump off a cliff, I bet that I could get people to do it with me. And she knew, like, she told me this. She was like, you just, you're a leader. And I've always been a leader. I've like, yeah. you know, whether it's leading people in good ways or, you know, naughty ways, bad ways. And like growing <laughs> up, I was a terrible kid. Very, um, you know, I got in trouble quite a bit. But I was also always blamed for things. So I think that's why I yeah. fell into that. But yeah. I I think that that's something that has always stuck with me. And so then I ended up, you know, getting out of the military and they were surprised. Like I said, I had, I had mm-hmm. just like the year before that got promoted early, and so usually when you get promoted early, that means the chance of that happening again is is high. Like yeah. you have this trajectory. Yeah. And then for me to be like, mm, thanks, but no, thanks. I'm getting out, and I'm going to go get my education, um, which is one of the benefits of joining is that you get education right. benefits, you know. And and so I ended up at Saint Edward's University, and I needed to take an elective, and so I took Ceramics One. Um, I ended up making on the first day, you know, in the studio with all these students that a lot of them were art students or had taken art in high school. And here I was a little bit older, but like, we all had this clay in front of us and I made like these really beautiful things like right away. And it was like, kind of like, whoa, Whoa. I did not know that I could do that. Like we were just making pinch pots, but not that like, that's the most difficult thing to do, but like, I'd never played with that in my yeah. life and all of a sudden I have clay in my hands and, and like my pinch pots are perfect and have these like tiny little holes at the top and they're just like beautifully shaped and bulbous mm-hmm. and I loved that class, mm. and I had so much fun in it that I made this psycho decision to put off uh, being a dentist, and and I decided I would just do that later. But like I was having so much fun with this ceramics class, I wanted to do it again. Yeah. And the only way to take all these art classes was to switch my major. So I switched my major, and I had the intention of switching it back to biology, so that way I could double major. Yeah. And then I ended up like majoring in art and having a minor in biology, but still having all the prereqs done for to get into dental school. And yeah. I thought that's what I was going to do still. Even after like getting this art degree, I thought I was going to work in dentistry and I had this job lined up like right out of graduating that was in the dental field and everything. And did that
0: really inspire you though.
1: Oh um, God. No. I mean,
0: the idea of being a dentist compared no. to art and no, <laughs> that was just a practical <laughs> that choice? Was just
1: pra- I mean, I was a single mother. Okay. You know, I had okay. to think about these Yeah, things. thinking about
0: being an artist is not a no. practical you know, choice. No, and the
1: first thing, like, you hear a lot is like, oh, you're going to starve, you know, and, like, uh, yeah. it's the last thing I want to do. It's annoying, you know, but, like, when – but even, like, Hollis Hammonds, who's one of my great mentors. She's the art director at St. Edward's Chair of Visual Art. But uh, Hollis – I remember her saying, like, it was my second semester as an art student. And I remember her coming into the class and saying like, the majority of you are not going to work as artists. And mm. like, if that's something you want, if you want to be an artist, you have to do everything you can to make that happen. Mm. It was a perfect thing to tell somebody like me because, like, first off, don't tell me I'm not going to, you know, (laughs) like, uh, hello. Um, That's motivation for me to be like, I will, and I'm going to be amazing at it, and I'm going to do all these things. And so, and this is still early on, you know, like I said, it was just my second semester. And fast forward a couple years later, I ended up being, you know, a senior, and uh, I had decided I was – you know, gonna try to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And that, and I knew graduate school could maybe be something that I do one day. And, uh, and that could help me be an art professor. Like I, I made these great relationships with like Hollis and a couple of the other professors, Mm -hmm. uh, Wally Connolly and Stan Irvin that like, um, you know, I felt like I could be a professor one day if I kind of geared my career to help me with that. And I, you know, I graduated from St. Ed's in 2012, but my final project there, mm. it's what started my art career, yeah. you know, and um, and that's Letters of Sacrifice. Um, yeah, so Letters of Sacrifice is a memorial to service members who've been killed since 9-11, and I made it whenever I was a uh, senior at St. Ed's. Uh, because I wanted to honor the men and women that didn't get to use their post-9-11 GI Bill like I did.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: at the end of the day, I joined Open General. So did a lot of these people that have died for our country. And I wanted to do something to uh, represent them. And at that time, like in our media and the world that we lived in, like to me, it just felt like all these students that I was around, these people that are around, the professors and everybody, like they didn't really care about the war. You know, mm. it's like. I have a different perspective and I was really defensive about it. But it was because of that passion that yeah. like, I really care about our service and about our involvement abroad. And so I decided to make Letters of Sacrifice and I put a lot of effort into this piece which took like all, you know, like it took a while to build this thing that was going to be larger than me. And whenever I proposed it to my classmates, a lot of people were like, well, that's, yeah, that's a huge piece. Like, where are you going to put this? Like St. Edward's gallery isn't tiny, tiny, but it's not a huge gallery. Yeah. So I was like, well, it'll be outside. Like, I'll just do it outdoors, you know. And, and I started thinking about what I wanted to do for that piece. And that is where the idea of using rolled paper came in. Yeah. Um, I wanted to create a spiral, which is a symbol of life to death beginning to end. And that would represent each one of the lives and deaths of these people that served our country and made that ultimate sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's empty wire at the top of that installation. And I knew I wanted that to be something that I could add to. Because at the end of the day, this is the longest lasting war our country has ever seen. Uh, It hasn't stopped. I know we're right back there again right now, you know, like in the media. People are talking Mm -hmm. about it, but the truth is is we've never really left that Mm -hmm. area, that region. And, you know, I wanted it to be something I could add to. And the symbolism of that is probably one of the most important parts of that piece. But the paper itself, like I, um, you know, collaborated and talked with my professors and we came up with this idea uh, that it would be rolled paper which was like what I was pushing for but then like what would the paper be like what would yeah. make it so significant and the most important piece of paper that that service member gets you know really out of their whole time you know they're they're dead and gone but then there's this letter that's kind of like the last piece of paper mm-hmm. that represents them and then it's not really just about the sacrifice that that service member made anymore it's about the sacrifice of the person that had to read that letter the person that wrote that letter the people that are written about within the letter and so it shows a sacrifice that's much beyond you know war and and that person dying it's it's about that life and that person you know and yeah. our media at the time man i mean they would report on these stories And they would just be like, eight service members die in a crash. And they would just leave it at that. And it'd be like a crash that happened last week. And like, they already know these guys' names. They know who they are, where they're from. Like, why can't these media, you know, anchors just like take a moment and say their names. Like, the respect you know and there's hardly any publications out there that actually do that there are a few Mm -hmm. but um that report on it daily and like say their names and where they're from and the person that service member was you know because to me that's what it's about like i i didn't serve with a bunch of airmen i served with a bunch of humans and they cared about the world just like civilians do and just to have somebody dumb it down to just this like death it's it's way more than that
0: in my mind and wasn't this condolence letter based on one that was written for you?
1: Yes. Yeah. Which was, well, that was a, a heavy email to send my commander, but I had a great relationship with him. And um, so I felt comfortable enough to ask him to write me a letter as if I died, what would he had written mm. my mom and dad? And then I generalized the letter like, it, you know, you could fill it in. But that was another thing, too. I mean, so when I asked him that, he was like, oh, yeah, there's a template for that. No problem. Like, what? Yeah. What the piss? There is a template. Like, what? But isn't it the world that we live in? Mm. Like, everything needs to be, like, now, 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 now. You know, an instant and current, you know? And so, like, families have these letters in their hands, sometimes 12 hours after the death even happened. Mm. You know, like, who gets to digest that? But it not that, like, what we demand as a society? It's like, now. Like, you yeah, better sure. get it right away. Like, there's no time for waiting. If somebody did wait too long, well, then they're, like, ridiculed for that. Right. So, it it hurt me to know that there's just this fill in the blank form out there, Mm -hmm. but it's really not like that. I mean, they still make it very personal. Like my letter that was written to me was like extremely personal about like who Jen was, not necessarily who Airman Hassan was, but like who, Mm -hmm. who I was to him and who I was to the squadron and the people that I was around. And, um, what did
0: you learn about yourself in that letter?
1: oh that people oh god (laughs) that people like me uh well i know this sounds bizarre like i put myself out there a lot and i on paper know that i'm liked you know but to read that letter and to see how much people um or how much he cared about me and how much he knew that the people that i touched and that i was around cared about me and what kind of dental assistant was even you know written in there like You know, so going back to this whole idea of, like, who I was and, like, and who I am now with the kind of artwork that I make and whatnot. I was a really great dental assistant. Like, I made patients comfortable. It was fun. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I honestly feel like people were not freaked out in my chair. It was a good job for me to get. I don't think it was an accident that I got that job. So, uh, to read this letter about my death, it was a bizarre experience that kind of makes you think, you know, like, oh, gosh, like, if I die, at least positive things will be said (laughs) but um
0: and so this was your final piece from school from studying art when you decided you wanted to be an artist but then that didn't that end up in the pentagon
1: it did yeah which is a great story so letters of sacrifice uh, whenever i was making it there were people that like even professors that were like you're making a mistake making this thing so big like where are you gonna put this thing like, you got to think about this. Like, where's it going to go? And I had watched this documentary about Maya Lin, and she was giving advice to her niece. And she said, if you're going to make artwork for the world and for the museum and for the gallery, like make it for that place. Don't make it for home. Don't make it for your wall above your couch. Like, if you're going to make art for the world, make it for the world
2: mm-hmm. and
1: commit to it. And so uh, when I made that decision to do that for Letters of Sacrifice, which is, you know, it's 12 feet in diameter, 8 feet tall. uh, You walk in it, around it. It's this huge sculpture. I couldn't bring that home. And so I had to make calls. And so I called uh, all these different galleries, and it ended up getting into the Texas Military Forces Museum. While it was there, it was seen by a retired colonel who was a lover, an avid lover of the arts. And he gave me, like, a patron grant, and he funneled it through a nonprofit organization, but he gave me a grant for my studio space.
2: Mm. And so,
1: like, I had just graduated, and then all of a sudden, like, my work's at this Texas Military Forces Museum at Camp Maybury and then, bam, I have a grant for a studio space to, like, go and continue and learn and uh, start a studio practice and... Um, And with that, he, like, organized these people to critique me, which was amazing, Mm. you know, early on. But I had made, like, this huge piece, Letters of Sacrifice, and then uh, right after that, had started making all this small work. And so, like, one of the critiques early on was, like, whoa, whoa, like, you got this grant for, like, a huge piece that you made. Maybe you should go back to working large. And then I, like, worked really big again. And so it's been kind of... You know, not that bigger is better, but like my larger works definitely are more jaw dropping Mm -hmm. than my smaller works. Anyway, so Letters of Sacrifice, it's been this like thing that fueled my, the start of my art career. Um, And then it ends up in the Pentagon, you know, and like how did that happen? And I can tell you, like, and like if I could only use one word, I would say rejection. Like I was rejected over and over and over again at all these places leading up to the Pentagon. And then, Whenever I was in this like, conceptual phase of making letters of sacrifice before it was even built, I was telling people, like, man, like, where I want this to be is at the Pentagon. I want it to be in front of the people, the men and women, that actually make decisions about the war. Because you can blame Bush, and you can blame Obama, and now Trump, all you want. But it's not them. It's the folks at the Pentagon. Those are the people that are dictating where we go and what we do. And yeah. they're making these educated decisions on what to do you know and it's you can't blame one person for these things even yeah. when executive orders are made it's it's through the advice of these people that are at the pentagon and so i'd wanted that and people laughed like the, my peers were like okay good luck jenny that's probably never going to happen but that's good that they told me that because i <laughs> yeah. made it happen so i was rejected 18 times mm. I emailed uh, different people and not like an official rejection, but I emailed people over and over and over again, all these different generals, all these, and either would get like no response or like a, you know, I have no idea how to help you with that. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know who to talk to because there's artwork in the Pentagon. It's curated by the Smithsonian. So it's there. There is work there. And I knew it was possible. But I just like needed to make the right connection. And so um, me being that kind of person that's always busy doing things that like I don't really have time for, I ended yeah. up in this fellowship with uh, an organization called The Mission Continues. And I show up to this site. Uh, it was like this like weekend retreat thing. And then it was a six-month fellowship where they paid a nonprofit organization to employ me. The Mission Continues paid for me to work for Big Medium, essentially. Yeah. And so um, that's how I really became connected to Big Medium. And the folks like Shay and Jana and uh, Jordan and everybody at Big Medium, um, you know, was through this other nonprofit. So opening weekend for this fellowship, like we go and we do this service project. And I walk into this building and we're repainting the entire inside. And because I'm an artist, they were like, you're in charge of painting. 'cause all of a sudden I right. can put on a construction hat and like be like, yes, I can I can paint walls white. Um, which I can. It's not a big deal. They put me in charge of uh, fifty veterans to like paint the interior of this building. And then there was like a group outside that was like doing landscaping and then people that were pain- painting the outside of the building. I mean it was just this huge service yeah. project. And inside of the room that I was in, I kept on, like every few minutes would see this man walking by with like no paint on him He was just like completely pissing me off because it was like everybody else is working. We're listening to music and painting and like this guy just is like walking around. And so I was like, yo, you know, hey, go grab that stool over there, get a bucket of paint and an angled brush. I'm going to teach you how to paint some trim. You know, like you can't be in my space and not have paint on you. Like yeah. you're here. Like work. <laughs> what are you doing? Quit walking around. I'm supervising this joint, not you. So I, I got him to, uh, to come over and start painting, and we start talking about like you know what service we were in, and he had just gotten out of the army, and I had just you know I was out of the air force, and so, um, one of the things you do whenever you're a veteran is you pick on the other branches. So yeah, like, sure, like if you're in the air force, you're smart, and like. Obviously, you join the Air Force because you're smart. And if you're in the Army, it's because you're stupid. You know, I don't know. I mean, there's just these stupid things that people, and yeah. none of that's true. Right, So the, well, the, the smartest veteran I know is a Marine, but like, you know, jarhead. I mean, there's all these things that like yeah. we pick on each other for. And so he and I were just talking about our service and I was talking, I was rambling on about being a dental technician and then asked him what he did. And he was like, Oh, I just, you know, like kind of led things. And it was kind of obvious he didn't want to say what he did. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, it's in my personality to be like, well, that sounds stupid. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> it turns out that I uh, two-star general planned the Iraq invasion kind of a big deal general grimsley like yeah. huge deal like he's this you guy like,
0: tell him what to do and i'm just like
1: <laughs> treating him like mm, like what like why was he even listening to me and like yeah. it was explained to me you know for people like that in that kind of position it's so refreshing to have somebody else tell you what to do mm. and to order you around a little bit but it's also refreshing i'm sure if you're a general to have somebody not know who you are yeah and just treat you normal because, yeah. like in the military, if you have a star, like oh gosh, or two, shoot, you know, like that's a yeah. huge deal. So it's in my personality to like not really care about rank normally. But then he ended up asking me if there was anything he could ever do with me or for me, um in DC, to let him know. And I was oh. like, actually, do there you, you have a connection to the Pentagon still? And he was like, yep. And I was like, okay. So I made this piece. I'm um, an artist. And I made this piece uh, called Letters of Sacrifice, and it, I made it with every intention of it ending up in the Pentagon because I want the men and women that make the decisions about the war to see it. And General Grimsley not only got it in the Pentagon, but he got it right outside of the Secretary of Defense's office. And so the people that directly made these decisions, including mm-hmm. Ash Carter, and now uh, mad Dogmatics, you know, they had to walk right through it. They had to see it. That was the goal. That was totally the goal. And and me being me helped get that, you know, yeah. and, and like not having a fear of rejection anymore. Like, I think once you get rejected over and over and over again, it's just whatever. Like getting rejected again, it's no big thing. You know, yeah. it's just like, okay, well then on to the next. I think that that lesson of like just putting yourself out there over and over and over again. And if you have a good intention... Uh, And you keep pushing it and not like forget about it, then it could happen.
0: And there's something about your work and that piece in particular where it's, like, when someone walks up to it, they don't really know what it's about. They just think it's, like, this really interesting or beautiful thing. And then they realize what it is. And oh, that's yeah. kind of, like, your trick or whatever it is. your approach. Right?
1: Yeah, it's totally my approach. And so uh, I love tricking people into, like, learning about these different issues. And so, like, even with, like, you know, the projects that are about rape and suicide, like, none of none of my work looks like what it's actually about. It's all these, like... Very beautiful, um, in my mind. Maybe mm-hmm. some people don't find them beautiful, but um, they're intriguing, beautiful pieces that like you have no idea what they're about. And then you walk up and you start looking at these things and then you're like, what is this? And you go read about it. And then it's about all the deaths in our military since 9-11. You know? And it's it, these are condolence letters. And there's empty wire because more people are going to die. And, uh, and more letters will be added. So having somebody come and see it and be like, wow, this is so interesting. What is this? And then go read about it. There's a reaction that fuels me to want to keep doing that,
2: Mm.
1: you know? So like, there's all these different parts of my work. Like we have that part of like, you know, you see the final piece and people see it and they uh, experience it. And that fuels me to want to make more. But like, while I'm making the work and I'm doing these community projects where I have all these different people coming together to help me make something, whether it's rape survivors or people that care about uh, the military PTSD issues and uh, or, like, death and um, honoring and remembering these people. You know, it, it's, like, bringing people together is, like, my number one. Like, I almost feel like a lot of times a lot of the art is lost because all you see is this final project. Like there's all these things that happen in the meantime that like people don't, they don't even know about it's this thing, you mm. know, that happened. And, and I would say that like on one hand, I feel like I've failed with that. And on the other, it's like, it's not necessary for everybody to know everything. Right. Cause so, those
0: people know, what those people they know experience. Yeah. With you.
1: But that happened early on for me, like this community engagement thing and mm-hmm. like bringing people in and having people be part of the projects. Like, with letters of sacrifice. There, like, I put a call out to have people help me roll paper because I quickly realized there was no way I was going to get this thing done if I didn't have people help me. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of was forced into this like contemporary idea of having a bunch of people help make your work. So at St. Ed's, I did this call for like a Saturday morning, and I got like a bunch of the veterans uh, and the veteran liaison at St. Ed's to like set up. Chris Garcia set up like to where there'd be like breakfast tacos there and food and drinks and snacks. And we invited students to come. And, like, 55 students from this one organization called CAMP, which is the College Assistant Migrant Program, showed up at, like, 9 in the morning to roll paper. Like, I didn't even have... I could have brought more paper and they would have rolled it. I mean, they were so awesome. But this is a community that's not directly part of the military community but has a lot of relatives that are. So these are students that are from migrant families that got scholarship to go to St. Ed's. But a lot of them have siblings or uncles or aunts that joined the military. And that was the route that they took to get away from poverty, you know? And then these students like lucked out with this. And so they have this like direct interest of really caring about the military community, but a lot of people wouldn't put those two together, but then like they get to sit with veterans and like hear our perspective and our stories, you know, and two of them joined the military after and let me know, Wow, you know, that they felt so inspired to join the military after, Like they were already feeling that way. And then it was like they ended up commissioning as officers in the army. I was disappointed. Oh (laughs) Just kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What what was that like when you were sitting there watching these 55 people roll your paper? I mean, what did that feel like?
1: So I walked away at one point because I was so overwhelmed. And Hmm. at the same time. Oh God, I, I don't want to choke up whenever I talk about this, but like at the same time, like my professors were um, down the hallway and it was, like, we were in this building called Fleck at St. Edwards and they were down the hallway interviewing uh, candidates for teaching tenure track position at St. Ed's. And ultimately Alex Robinson got that job. Who's been a great mentor and friend to me. So they were down the hall and they were taking a lunch break and they walked in and they were just like, their jaw hit the floor they couldn't believe it because these were people some of them were people that were telling me that what i was wanting to achieve was impossible oh. and then here i am like you know i think at that point it was like 11 30 or so and we had these like stacks and stacks of rolled paper and they were shocked and i was even more shocked i will say that i did walk away a couple times and i just cried like oh. i just couldn't believe it that people cared so much they didn't know me i wasn't friends with them one or maybe two Art students that I had been taking all these art classes with came, and the rest of them were all strangers and oh. then my veteran community, and my fiance was there because if he wouldn't have been, I would have killed him. <laughs> so yeah. he should have yeah, of <laughs> so uh, he's not my husband, so good job, Jeff. yeah, I mean, and Jeff was a huge bringing Jeff into this like he was a huge part of this too. like mm. here I was like trying to create this thing that like I knew would never sell, and I knew it was like... Yeah. This thing that was gonna take a lot of my time. And he was right there helping me. He's an engineer and he was right there helping me design these bases. Cause at first I was like, I want them to be made out of concrete. he's like, Well, we'd need to buy a forklift or a crane because that would weigh, way too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, no, that's not gonna happen. So like I drew him up and then he helped me design these bases and um he helped build them. And I was so thankful then, and I'm still thankful now and um, but that to me was like a true testament that he really like believed in me as an artist and as somebody that wanted to make a difference. And and I knew he was proud of me like when I was doing it. You know, yeah. like he he is a supporter of mine and a very important supporter. Yeah, definitely.
0: So six years later, after you've graduated, what is your career in studio practice look like now?
1: So now, currently, I'm still making work that raises awareness about various issues. Currently, I'm working on a project that is about sexual violence and rape.
2: Mm.
1: I, I actually still have, like, the clothes that I was raped in. And so I'm making mm. paper out of them. But I'm also, like, inviting other people to give me their clothes that they were raped in. Because if I still have my clothes, other people that are victims still have their clothes, too. And, like, what do you do with them? They kind of just, like, sit in a bag Mine were in the attic, but like I have a friend who uh, was also raped in her clothes in a bag at the back of her closet. And she's like, oh, my God, please get this out of my house. Yeah. It's going to make my whole living experience better just by you taking these out and then making something beautiful with them. So that's what I do. Like I make these pieces that are beautiful to look at, but then about these things that are serious topics that mm-hmm. people need to take an issue with, you know, and, and digest it. You know, it gives them an opportunity to, and I feel like it invites people in an easier way. Like when it is something
0: that's beautiful. So I if there's a metaphor there where like you're you're almost like you're breaking down the clothing and building it back up into something beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Taking something that like represents one thing and turning it into another. Yeah, it's like the evolution of that garment. You know. Yeah. And what it's turned into, and I think that also is directly inspired by the Western Wall as well. Like my work, mm. the reason why I roll paper, and the reason why I wanted to do that to create this barrel but also because of the Western Wall and like this beautiful space in Israel where you can go and write something and give it to the universe. And some people write to God, some people write to the universe, but like when I went I wrote to the universe then then I wrote all these things. And yeah. you know, it's it's such a spiritual place and you take this time to like write all these things and then you put it into this space and it it's there. And Mother Nature kisses it and it's left there to do its thing and then it ends up being collected and then blessed and buried Mm. you know it's like these things all uh, evolve into something else and then it's part of the earth there's something really beautiful about like changing and evolving things and like metamorphosis you know Mm -hmm. so i've had a studio practice since 2013 at canopy and i've had a beautiful space that I love and adore. It's been comfortable for me to like make work here and to experiment on like new styles or like to push myself, like what can I do with rolled paper, but also like what can I do with other materials? You know, I I think I'm known more for the rolled paper stuff, but I've been doing other things lately too. But another part of my studio practice is working on commissioned work. So those typically don't have a dark topic attached to them. Usually they are happy. Um, but it's for a client, you know, and, and for their home. And like, I will say, even though it doesn't have that aspect to it, they're still so personable and they're about that family. And a lot of times like the family where they'll write prayers, you know, into paper and then I roll it into the piece and they're hidden there and they know which roles they're in, but like nobody else does. And so it's just like they still mean a lot. There's the, all, still all these hidden messages within and like, A connection my to work. them,
0: to who they are, right? And the yeah.
1: commission work financially allows for all this to happen for me to go and yeah. make work for university shows that typically don't bring in funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like I've been an entrepreneur and a businesswoman as well uh, during this whole venture over the six past six years, and over the past two years, I will say that I definitely got a grasp on how to like make money doing this. All while still raising awareness and like making the things that you know uh, end up in galleries and at the Pentagon or in New York and and whatnot. Mm. And those are more conceptual ideas that are for the gallery. I don't have the intention of selling those usually. So that commissioned work allows for that. But now I've made the decision to go to grad school so Mm. um, and get an MFA. Finally, Uh, it just is the right time. I've got a couple kids. I had a baby a couple years ago, and a couple years ago I was ready for grad school. And then this biological thing happened and like (laughs) put it off for a little while, but which is perfect because I'm at a different point in my career. I had no way slowed down. You know, she just came to the studio with me and she was nine days old and here at the studio. My son has been coming here since he was three and, Just very much, you know, part of my studio practice is to, like, be able to create in a place where my kids also can hang out. Um, But that's all about to change, like, with grad school and going back to studying. And we're moving to New York, so we also have, like, a geographical change (laughs) that's happening for our family. But I have a really supportive husband who knows this is the right time. And I'm a veteran, so I have GI benefits, which are going to help pay for this, but I've also, you know, worked really hard on where I'm at now as like an emerging artist and professional artist that I feel like going to grad school now um, is only going to help me achieve those goals and make more connections outside of the state of Texas. And not that I haven't already made connections outside of Texas, but just to push it even further and also take me out of this comfort zone. One of the reasons why I'm comfortable with moving to New York is I've excelled in my past when you put me in a new place that I'm uncomfortable with. It's fine. Like, yeah. I, I'll make it work, and I'll, I'll do well. And I had a really big challenge choosing a grad school. I got accepted into quite a few. And I ultimately ended up going with Pratt Institute. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're pretty academic with their studies, but they also, you know, a lot of success has come out of Pratt uh, lately. And I feel like it's going to be a great learning environment in Brooklyn you know, to be able to live in Brooklyn and work in Brooklyn and study in Brooklyn, I think is going to be a good transition for me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know what's going to happen in the future. All I do know is that I'm going to continue to try to do a lot of the same things that I've been doing as far as concept goes. You might not see as many rolled paper conceptual works coming from me, especially while I'm in grad school. I'm, I'm wanting to change and experiment and play with media like, I know it sounds bizarre but I want to experiment with like photography and film and moving image and sound yeah. and all these other things that I feel like here in Austin and here in my studio I just I end up rolling paper.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so
1: I want to get away from this and and go and see what happens.
0: How do you imagine your legacy? Do you think about legacy as being an artist of your artistic career or maybe do you ever fantasize about what it'll look like in 10 20 30 40 years
1: oh yeah i'm very structured that way (laughs) (laughs) like i have this journal that i write in all the time and like i mean years ago i wrote that Jean claire i wanted Jean claire van ryzen to write about me yeah and then she called me you know and it was like (laughs) part of my five-year plan and i was like damn that happened in six months like way to make that happen manifesting yeah Yeah, nice um and so yeah i totally have an ego yeah so of (laughs) course i've thought about it Um, I definitely like, if I just say it quickly to people, especially people that aren't in the art world, then I'm not being bashful about it. Like I want to be a well-known artist. Mm -hmm. I want my work and it. I honestly don't believe that I want to be a well-known artist because I want to be well-known, but it's because I want these issues to be well-known. I want people to be educated and know what I'm trying to do. You know, I also want my legacy to be that, like I didn't make artwork just for the art community. Like, a lot of my works are political, and they don't necessarily align with what the art world wants me to be making artwork about, and I challenge, you know, the fact that just because it's a conservative issue doesn't mean that it's, like, racist or terrible or awful. It's just a different viewpoint or a different aspect of what Mm. that person wants, and sometimes it can get uncomfortable, but, like, at the same time, like, I'm bringing people in that sometimes aren't necessarily like the military community and the art world. They are connected, but not to like the level that they could be, you know, and, and also, um, other communities that I try to bring together. And like rape is one of those things. Well, like, you know, it's, it's an issue that's uh, in every community. It's not, it's not something that's just on the East side of Austin. It's also in Westlake. And so like bringing all these people together that are from all different walks of life, like I imagine in the future that like I like whenever I close my eyes and I dream and I like think of exactly what I want. It's it's a big art life. I want my issues to be something that bring people that wouldn't necessarily be sitting across the table from one another and have them work on something together for something, you know, like an art piece that I'm making or something and so have that community engagement and social thing just kind of break barriers and kinda of, and, and blur the lines that divide us. That's what Mm. I want to do with my artwork.
0: I'm just wondering if there's any kind of a call to action that you could say to anyone that's not an artist or maybe someone that wants to do something to address the issues that you care about. Like, what could a regular person do, do you think, in their life?
1: Definitely. Um, I think that if you want to make a change in the world that you live in, no matter what you are, like if you're an artist or if you're a, a farmer or... Whatever you are, you know, like just do it. Don't hesitate. Just start doing it. And, but if you're creative, that means like start making the work. Like I started making work in undergrad that was about stuff in like my drawing classes whenever it was like a regular assignment. I just made it about something because I, mm-hmm. that's just the way that I am. So, like, you, there's no limitations. You can just start doing it. And, like, if we all, if everyone that wants to make a difference, just started making and taking those steps to actually make a difference, then imagine the world we'd live in, you know? A lot of people that are trying to do good, you know? And I think that doing good today is invaluable when we need it. And so um, my call to action would be just do it. Just start. Just, like, take the necessary steps to make it happen.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, Jen.
1: Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it. This has been an honor. Thank you so much. No,
0: my honor.
1: Thanks for your time. Okay,
0: you too. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.